Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. And this is episode 63. Hey guys, are you uh, fresh back from Google I.O.? And what's Google I.O.? <laughs> what's this Google company? I think they make a phone. Might be called Android, Nexus, something like that. Actually, there was some interesting stuff pertaining to iOS developers. And a little bit interesting stuff. Yeah. This is the first year they didn't have it in, in Moscone as well. So they actually had it in an outdoor theater uh, in Mountain View with 5,000 developers. Yeah. That's a whole lot of nerd sweat. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, whole that's lot a of thing. Sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds horrible. Well, <laughs> well it's, they're in the middle of a drought. So I think there wasn't much of a gamble of whether they'd have, whether they would get rained out or not. But it's interesting because in San Francisco, the temperature is relatively cool. But as soon as you get outside to, say, San Jose and Mountain View, it spikes up pretty quick. And if you look at a lot of the speakers from those videos, they look they look a little um, hot. Not terribly hot, but there definitely were people not sitting in the sun when they would pan out in the crowd. They were all in the shade. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering if they passed around sunscreen for the <laughs> folks that didn't didn't get into the shade. Yeah, I think somebody did. It was I remember hearing that it was like shaped like some kind of phone or an Android. I don't know. I just overheard it. I wasn't there. Yeah, my recollection of going to San Francisco is always, oh, it's going to be so nice when you get there and it's all cold and crap and you got to wear a jacket at night because it's cold and windy. Right. But yeah, yeah it's a little bit different yeah. a couple miles away. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they got a few interesting things. Uh, first off <laughs> was uh, their new instant apps, which sounds like could be a uh, future evolution for what we have with app thinning where if you break down your kind of a combination of app thinning and deep linking because you need to break down your app into certain modules and kind of set your dependencies correctly and then you can just give a deep link to a part of your app and then if somebody doesn't have that app it'll download and show up right away and then they have a option of actually doing a full install yeah, it definitely looks interesting. When they demoed it, the use case they had was uh, previewing an app uh, that was in development. Uh, so rather than like sending out like a test flight style build, you just send out a link and it just kind of dynamically loads just portions of the app uh, for somebody to try out live with all the gestures and animations and everything. Uh in one of the sessions, they talk, they demoed more of a recipe app. And they said, like, if you're sending out a newsletter and you're talking about your, all your vegan recipes, you don't want, say, like a hamburger recipe to show up on the front screen for when they download your, when they actually download your app and go through the onboarding and everything. Hmm. I can see where that would make sense. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I don't. I think sometimes you get a little bit more capabilities when you don't have machine code like we do versus what they have with the with their byte code. Just maybe it would be a, a linking error or a linker, not a linking error, but just a, a linking nightmare trying to carve up an app like that. They, they made it seem like it was pretty easy. Like they were saying, oh, if you have a simple app, then it takes you a less than a day to to do it but who knows depending on how complicated your app is and i know on ios it seems like a lot of times any app even if it doesn't have a lot of like resources and stuff in it still is like 50 megabytes because of all these uh libraries that are included so i don't know i i think it'd be cool to uh if that something like that would come to ios like the next gen app thinning but um it maybe would help like push some of these libraries to get thinner because 
it's kind of refreshing when I go and download an app and it's only like five megabytes. I'm like, yeah, this is really nice. <laughs> yeah. Which we'll get into that comment a little bit later if you're incorporating Swift code into your app. <laughs> yep. So what else was kind of interesting to you guys? They made some updates to Firebase, and which is to some degree a competitor to backend as a service platforms like Parse. But Firebase is a little bit of a different model where it's a mostly just a database. Uh, there's no like cloud code type of feature where you can have uh, dynamic functionality server side. It's mostly just database syncing. And it does that really well. Uh, but they added a number of additional features and reinforced the, their stance on Firebase not going away. And I think a big focus of the new features is around things like analytics, um, to some degree, the capabilities that Fabric uh, from Twitter, those types of features with, I don't know if it does app distribution, but uh, analytics and um, more real-time monitoring of the apps. And I personally am not completely clear where Firebase Analytics and Google Analytics kind of overlap? You know, are they competing or is one trying to solve a different problem? Well, I think, I think they're trying to replace Google Analytics for mobile with it because my, at least my experience, and I've heard this from other people too, is that Google Analytics kind of stinks on, on mobile, especially on iOS, but just trying to look at their dashboards and stuff like that doesn't really have a mobile uh, focus and just from watching the keynote and I've actually uh, me and another guy from my company were, were like wow this looks really cool so I've been working on getting it into our iOS apps uh, the past day or two um, and the goal is definitely to replace Google Analytics uh, but I, I think maybe you mentioned this earlier Alex but it definitely, definitely seems like it's almost a fabric like play uh, and just in terms of all the random stuff that it does, I downloaded their SDK and it's, they're like, oh yeah, just, just add the CocoaPod line. But if you download every, if you get all the libraries they use, kind of going back to my last comment too, it's over a hundred megabytes <laughs> Oh wow! for all that stuff. And I don't know, the analytics is like the, the smallest piece and everything else depends on the analytics. So it seems like they're doing a big push for this for analytics, but we use uh, Flurry right now for a lot of our analytics and haven't been happy with that. We switched away from Google Analytics because, like I said before, it's not not very mobile-friendly. So we're hoping this will be good for us. We'll have to see. Um, but, yeah, it really makes me not want to put all these other things in there, too, just because of the size of all the libraries. Right. Um, most of what I could find about the additions to Firebase seem to be revolve around the analytics. What else is in there worth uh, considering? Well, kind of like uh, Fabric has, they have AdMob, their their Ad Network's uh, SDK in there. Um, they have some other stuff. Let me pull it up real quick. Let's see, 109 megabytes. Yeah, buddy. Um, you, you definitely have to use a sub-spec. Yeah. Those. They've got crash reporting. They've got authentication stuff. They've got um, app indexing stuff, invites, and like Google Cloud messaging. Um, they have a remote config thing, and then they have like the Firebase storage stuff. So it's got a bunch of different things. Yeah, it's somewhere somewhere around what a parse, more of a parse-like platform, and also. Just a competitor to Fabric. Yeah. Although it seems like everyone just decides to add crash reporting to their SDKs lately. Like uh, CI servers, well, you know, everybody wants to yeah. get in on the crash reporting <laughs> business, apparently. Well, Google Analytics has it. Yeah. Uh, Flurry has it. Pretty much any analytics company offers yep. that in addition to uh, just base analytics. So, um, you know, I guess it's, it's good and bad. You know, don't necessarily want to have five different things capturing 
intercepting crash reports. Well, if they if they're doing that at the same time, that's that gets really rough because you never know which yeah. one's actually going yeah, to handle no your crash. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I think this is a good thing. I was disappointed that they didn't actually expand the capabilities of the backend services uh, with something like cloud code, so you can have business logic on the server instead of just a raw database. But it's still a, a good step forward. Maybe that wasn't super profitable. <laughs> um, no, and that's very well may may be the case. Um, well, you can just fire up an app engine instance and be all set. Yeah, you know, there's a clear business advantage here for Google in terms of the analytics. You know, it fits their business model. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like one of those, no matter how many times they say it's not going to go away, Facebook said the same thing about Parse. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's still something to do with uh, with your eyes open. Analytics aren't that hard to rip out and replace, but backends are, are a lot more difficult. Definitely. Um. So what else? Uh, they added... Uh, some new messaging apps. Those were ma- mostly just the butt of jokes uh, from what I saw. Um, <laughs> I guess the nice thing is they have the the way to respond to their personal assistant uh, in a in a chat bot like way, which would be nice to be able to type stuff to Siri because you sound like a a tool if you're out in the middle of a you know crowded street trying to get Siri to answer a question <laughs> for you. Yeah, it it made me think a little bit more about chatbots as something viable. Only for a little bit, though. But as far as being able to hook it up to something really interesting, um, like being able to make dinner reservations and buy your movie tickets all with a couple of commands in a group chat, that's pretty pretty cool stuff. Then it really is just a digital assistant. It's not just a voice in, in, interface into your phone. Yeah, the thing that's kind of scary to me as a as mostly an iOS developer is that all this cool AI stuff, machine learning stuff that Google has, all looks really cool, and I want to use it, um, but it's not as easy to use on iOS. And I feel like if I feel that way, lots of consumers will too. So. <laughs> I don't think Apple is going to be able to do it as good as Google. Right. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's going to be something that's mostly available in the newer phones, not in the phones that people hold on to year after year after year, which is the, the biggest Achilles heel that Android has always had. Yeah. People, people talk up about how big of a deal that is, but... um. They do a lot better job at, than Apple, I feel like, of letting developers go back and use stuff like the the instant apps. I think they said we're gonna they were gonna support back to Lollipop, which I mean, is, no, I think it went all the way back to Jelly Bean. Was it Jelly Bean? Yeah, I mean that's 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 older than what ago. you're gonna support on any iOS device right now. You're not shipping support for stuff that was that came out that far back. Well, they they frequently have backporting libraries, yeah, uh, in order to bring some functionality, and I, I think that was discussed during the keynote as well, like retrofit code to to have some of the same experiences and functionality on older versions of the platform. Yeah, like I don't think Allo and Duo are only going to be on Android N; they're going to be available for most Android devices, probably. Yeah. yeah, and I think they also suggested that they were going to bring those to iOS as well, so yep. it wasn't going to be just the Android ecosystem, the, which which is kind of an interesting play, because if you remember when FaceTime was first announced, there was a promise that FaceTime <laughs> would be open-sourced, and <laughs> so it would be available on other platforms. And Whoops. Who knows? Maybe, maybe this will force Apple's hand to finally, uh, finally complete 
deliver on that promise and, and open source FaceTime, but it may be too little too late. Yeah, I've got to imagine it was like some type of licensing issue that they wanted to but couldn't. Otherwise, why would you even say you're going to do that? But Yeah, I, I feel like there were some patent suits shortly after FaceTime yeah. was announced. So it, it wouldn't surprise me that that the lawyers got involved and and got in the way of that happening. Yeah. And that makes sense. But I don't know. I think uh, what's that duo is their new messaging or video messaging app where it shows the person before you actually pick up the call. Yeah. They call that feature knock, knock. Yeah. Yeah. I would totally uh, block that from Sam. That could be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who's, who's calling? (laughs) <laughs> these <laughs> <laughs> yeah eh. interesting neat things there uh, they also got some kind of auto layout version in or they call it what they call it like a constraints constraint based layout so I guess they decided that they want Android developers to feel the same pain as iOS developers and kind of port it over auto layout. Yeah, it was funny. I was with a bunch of Android developers watching it and after they announced what we were talking and uh, they were basically all saying like, oh, I've heard awesome things about auto layout from all of my iOS developer friends, so I'm not really looking forward to this new constraint-based layout <laughs> thing. Yeah. Well, one thing that was kind of neat, though, is their IDE, when you try to drag and drop a constraint, it'll kind of auto preview what that's going to do to your layout. So that's neat. It will actually shift over the controls. If you're say pinning it to the right side of your, your uh, container. Mm-hmm. That, that could be cool. It, you know, obviously you, there's more to auto layout than just that. But you know, one thing they, they did not announce was Swift support. You guys kind of sad about that. I don't know if we're all surprised. I mean, it seems like it was a pretty early thing uh, for them to have been able to even, if they wanted to get it in, like get it in when there's just barely support in the, for like even compiling on Android, much less getting it working with all their libraries and stuff like that. Yeah, Swift, Swift was just open source in December, so definitely not enough time for them to do, I mean, Apple hasn't even fully <laughs> integrated Swift into the IDE, so I can't imagine uh, Google could catch up that quickly, or even the OS at that for that matter, which is uh, kind of sad since we're not going to have a stable ABI with Swift 3.0. It sounds to me like it's definitely not going to be making it into the OS for uh, iOS 10. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have kind of mixed feelings about it. It's to some degree, you know, it seems like they should hold off and and wait uh, for that to be complete. Uh, Erica Sedun had a interesting post on that topic, but at the same time, I, I don't think it's really going to impact me from day to day. Like I'm still using. Cocoa Pods, I'm not bringing in pre-compiled libraries. So I, I, I don't think it's going to change my workflow at all at this point. Right. As a framework developer, if you were developing something that was closed sourced, like, uh, say, Google Analytics or something, that means you won't be using Swift. But right. yeah, that's all right. Didn't Dropbox announce that they changed their whole uh, client library into Swift? A while ago they did so that sucks for them <laughs> yeah and i think there's been a lot of pushback against that too yeah someone wrote like a wrapper around it and stuff <laughs> in objective c <laughs> yeah they were i think they were talking about this on core intuition uh, that was a good good discussion you should check that out but yeah it seems like you, you got to be at least bummed out if you're if you're working on the dropbox API team. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you thought you were doing a great thing and instead you're the pariah of Twitter for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think generally speaking, the only third-party libraries I use that are closed source are the analytics tools. Like I tend to avoid having to integrate with third parties as much as possible uh, that don't provide an open source SDK. And it definitely has its benefits. Yeah. Well, for a while, Parse was the SDK was closed source. And there yeah. was a lot of, lot of usage of that. Yeah. But they did eventually open source that as well. Um, right. Or that, that, that was open source long before the Parse server. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And you could always use the REST API directly and not, not use their SDK, but there are some advantages to the SDK. Yeah, it did a few extra things for you. Object mapping being one. And caching and policies and things like that. Uh, you kind of got for free uh, with the SDK. Yeah. So on that note too, Erica Sadoon had an article about the things in Swift that she really wanted to make it into 3.0, but won't. Uh, she talks about a number of the proposals that she would have liked to have seen get through, uh, get into 3.0 before it shipped. Um, there was one one in particular that that I'm a fan of that I'd like to see get in there sooner than later was the result enum being part of the, the Swift library. There's so many uh, so many third-party libraries out there today that use that the result pattern, you know, where you either have a success uh, with some data or you have failure with an error. And uh, you know, based on her post, it sounds like the the big holdup there is more of a religious debate between whether it should be called result or either, where either is a little bit more generalized than result. Result suggests a more specific use case, but either could be used anywhere. Hmm. And I, I personally, I don't really care either way what, yeah. what they call it, but when you have three different libraries that all have an enum called result and you potentially have them used in the same, same place, you can run into some conflicts. And I've even created my own, so it's seems like it's something simple like an optional enum that could just be in the standard library. Yeah, it seems like something that would be nice with there. There's there's that holy war there. Another one that was kind of like that that I thought was interesting was the final by default for Swift source classes. So all the Objective-C people are like, no way, this is dumb. I don't want to, I don't want final by default. That'll screw up all the Apple classes and not let me subclass them, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I hated that when working with .NET code. Yep. And then Swifties are like, yeah, it seems like it'd be a lot safer, so why not we do that? <laughs> yeah, the only other big one that stood out to me was uh, disambiguating uh, Swift package manager naming conflicts. It seems like that might be an important thing. And what what is that where you can have co common names being used by multiple packages? Yeah, there's not a... There's not a way to resolve stuff if you have some generic name, like the example she gave was uh, JSON parser. But if you have, it's going to probably force people to do stuff like Sam's really cool JSON parser is the name of his library, which is not super swifty. Or com.sharedinstance.com. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling a Java <laughs> yeah. convention. Or going back to the Objective-C days and have you know, SPC blah, blah, blah class. Right, yeah. That's not Swifty, though. That's not how the Swift people roll. Right. The proposal that was referenced was to use import as mm, okay. instead of just import. So you can disambiguate that what you're doing. Yeah. That, that gets a little confusing, though, because... You'll import something as, and now you've got this extra layer of translation you have to do in your head when you're going back and rereading that source code. It's like, what is this class? What is this uh, really cool JSON parser? Is that 
this cool JSON parser or that cool JSON parser. But if if like there's one awesome JSON parser and all the other ones kind of suck, you don't want to have to be using like ABC JSON parser because the first person who came up with a JSON parsing library that was an SPM uh, got there first and there sucks. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that would be as, as big of a deal. I think the biggest issue is I need a way to allow... Right now, I don't think there's a way to have the same name for a Swift Package Manager module. So, meh. Swift 4, or maybe Swift 3.1, who knows? Yeah. yeah. I think we can count on there being point releases on 3, but they've made it clear that None of that's going to happen until after August, September timeframe when 3.0 is final and out the door. Yeah, they've got a big enough workload, I'm sure. And, you know, with hope, they're working closely with the tools team to make the Xcode experience even better. Refactoring, things like that. At least we hope so. Yeah, hopefully there's some cool surprises related to that at DubDub. Um, SPM integration. Yeah, I mean, that would kind of put the damper on CocoaPods going 1.0 recently. Yeah, I think it'll be a while before, you know, even if there's great support for SPM on day one of Xcode 8, I think CocoaPods will be around for a while longer. But, you know, that's one that I've said before, I wouldn't mind Apple Sherlocking. CocoaPods. Yeah. Well, the big thing right now is CocoaPods does frameworks. SPM does static libraries. So any yeah. solution that they have would go back to pre-framework CocoaPods yeah. hackery. They're working on, on frameworks. They're working on Objective-C support. So I don't know what the odds are of that being done for Swift 3, Xcode 8, but I know it's being worked on. It seems like they're overworked a little bit. One of Erica's blog posts referenced the the one with the different named modules said that they were kind of overworked as it is already. So it seems like they don't really have the bandwidth to get all that stuff in right away. But I tried out CocoaPods 1.0 after not using it for a while, and it was seems like it has improved a bunch. That it's really good at the at helping migrate from old old versions and uh, stuff like that. And their app is kind of useful. There's nice syntax I, highlighting and stuff. Yeah. I usually just tell Sublime Text that my pod file is a Ruby file. Yeah. And then I get my syntax highlighting. pretty close, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I take a little bit of beef with what the CocoaPods guys did leading up to 1.0. Because they were, they started issuing betas, and midway through the beta cycle, they totally changed up the pod file format. They introduced a whole entire new syntax and deprecated the old syntax that they'd had for years. In the middle of a bit, yeah, yeah, they have this abstract target thing, and they changed up how targets work a bit. Hmm, I did not so, come across that. And I guess that's because I was waiting for it to go 1.0. <laughs> but yeah, the beta does seem like an odd time to do that. Yeah. And they had some regressions that basically borked whole versions of the beta that were in production for, well, what counts as production with CocoaPods. Um, they went unre- unfixed for over a month, I'd, I'd say. They had some serious regressions between, I think, between four and five, and one that six didn't even fix. So it that lead up to 1.0 was pretty rough. But we're at 1.0 now, so things should be good. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. 1.01 soon. Unfortunately, I can't upgrade because there are Cocoa Ponds <laughs> that don't support newer version or. Pod files that don't support newer versions of uh, CocoaPods. So I'm stuck on like 3.9, I think. Or 0.39. 
Yeah. <laughs> right now in my book, it's kind of the gold version. Yeah. Well, they introduced a fairly significant breaking change that broke s- several existing projects. And unfortunately, these are projects on legacy projects that won't get updated anytime soon, where the the people supporting those open source projects have said, this is a corner of the desk project. I don't even use it anymore. So if you want to fix it, fix it yourself. Right. If it's just a pod spec issue, you could always fork it. Well, it's update the pod spec. And this kind of gets into it's a library that has several sub modules and those sub modules have dependencies on other libraries. And you end up with this, with this horrible dependency graph, which is why it breaks. Um, because the thing they changed in, in reading the net release notes, it sounded like it changed for the mono team. Uh, but they removed like recursive search paths by default or something like that. Uh, so it, it broke in, in this case in Reskit. Uh, but I think there were some others that broke as well. So it's it, theoretically, it should be easy to fix because I think it's mostly just the pod spec. Um, but just this nasty uh, dependency graph makes it yeah. even that more challenging. I was actually bored this last week and uh, found that ResKit issue and read through it. And it's kind of interesting to read through it. Seems like they have some workarounds listed in there. I don't know if any of them would work for you, Alex, but... I tried several. Um, I mean, there's like active comments as of like this past week, a bunch of stuff when it went 1.0. Yeah, it seems like I was looking to see if there was any new activity Yeah. regarding that because it seems like there would be more motivation yeah. now more than ever to to get it migrated. It sounds like the development branch might work in 1.0. Yeah, it could be a little risky though. But, you know, this is a classic example of a framework that got a little bit overzealous in what it was trying to accomplish. And mm-hmm. your networking code yeah. <laughs> tends to be everywhere in any sizable app. And the app that forward, that I inherited that uses RestKit, you know, was developed starting six years ago and has been growing since then. But there are around four to six hundred source files uh, there's literally uh, probably a hundred classes that have some dependency on Reskit. so it's not an easy thing to rip out gotta go for that layered approach so you can yep. isolate it you know Reskit does networking it does persistence it does object mapping does a number of things that uh, more than just you know a single framework with a single purpose. Uh, yeah, it's so, not a micro library. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and at the time, it was people liked it because it did so much for you that you got most of your backend logic out of the box with Rustkit. But yeah. Now uh, it's not very well maintained, and it's hard to replace. Right. So, have either of you submitted an app lately? Oh yeah. Say from the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Probably. And uh, uh, what was your experience there? I think we've had several apps really over the course of the last four to six weeks. I think we've been seeing an average of a 24-hour turnaround time, even over the weekend? Yeah, it was, uh, like, it had got down to a few days, and then all of a sudden it was like, I just submitted this yesterday, and you guys are approving it already. That's that's pretty awesome. We've, we had both new apps, brand new apps, and updates apps going through in less than a day. And that was... Uh, and. It, and it wasn't as if they were just skipping the review altogether. I mean, they were still reviewing. And, you know, we were one of our apps does in-app purchases, which is always, a, you know, that's one of those things that Apple scrutinizes a little. 
heavily and they become a little bit more sensitive to certain things that that they used to let slide in terms of capturing data about the user so um so yeah they they still look at it pretty closely hmm. but it's getting through so I'm really hopeful that this becomes the new standard for Apple, that 24-hour review times is something we can count on going forward. That's going to be interesting for them. You know, Apple is going to get more reviews coming in. You know, people are going to update more often, take like a Facebook approach where they pretty much always have an app in review. You know, if if they can do it every day, they will. Yeah, I was just going to say, continuous deployment for iOS, is it here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it gets closer. It changes the way you think about it in terms of, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I always have a ton of anxiety about pushing that button every time because I know if there's something gets out there, it can take days, even with an expedited review, to fix it. Oh, yeah, it's like a multi-week process for us to ship apps it's horrible yeah mm-hmm. so you know if you can turn it around in a day that really changes your approach your your way of thinking and hopefully reduces that anxiety quite a bit because you can be a lot more responsive to your customers yeah we like our, our typical way we do it is like we've got six apps on ios and we trickle them out by kind of like the least uh impactful one if there is some type of bug to the most impactful so it, we literally like wait a couple days and get feedback before we do each one and it takes forever just to actually release them after they've all been approved just because we're have all this anxiety about what happens if it goes wrong we can't use up our you know our one expedited review request that we are supposed to get so yeah yeah and hopefully people don't start taking a cavalier attitude saying oh well it's just going to if there's, if there's something wrong, I can just fix it and it'll be updated within 24 hours. Oh, I think they will. <laughs> I think people do that now anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, how many how many developers out there have a QA team? Well, there's a difference between having a QA test t- team and actually testing and then then the hitting the YOLO button, right? <laughs> yeah. The the big question it seems like though is is this just a fluke? Is it because there's not much going on uh, in this kind of in the lull before the storm that we keep talking about, or is this just an intentional permanent change that they've made? It's right. going to be more than just a lull. Just they've never had this quick of a turnaround consistently. I've had same day reviews in the past, but it was definitely felt like a fluke because. A few days later, we were back to, mm-hmm. you know, roughly a week. So, you know, this has been sustained, seems to have been a sustained uh, review cycle for several weeks now. But, you know, until it's it's been going for six months, I don't think I'll count on it staying this way. Well, but what if Phil stands up on on the stage at Dub Dub and it's like, and we've been doing this on purpose and we're going to guarantee that we keep our minimum like 48 hours instead of like 24 hours, our, like our average. Rolling. Don't double it. <laughs> keep well, it at 24. <laughs> if I was Apple, I would, I would hedge my bets <laughs> yeah. like for when iOS 10 launches or, you know, whenever the big holiday rush hits or something. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Phil is in charge of a lot more uh, with the App Store these days. I th- so, you know, there is a bit of a changing of policies and, and how it's going to be managed. Yeah. But he has he has been in charge of the App Store before. Yeah. But I, I feel like we, that we need to take the same stance that everyone else is, like whether it's on a, on a blog or a podcast or whatever, and say, this is the coolest thing ever. Thanks a lot, Phil. Yeah. You guys should keep it up. And act like it's the thing that's going to be going forward, just so that if if they don't, then it, it kind of makes them look bad. <laughs> yeah, we'll just assume that this is what an intentional change, and they reverse it, then they're dumb. <laughs> yeah. But they could have a lot more going on in the way of automated reviews. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of been my position in the past. Is they 
could be automating most of it and just looking for the exceptions. The, oh, you added health kit or you added push notifications or you added, uh, you know, some new framework or in-app purchases, you know, that would set a flag of this needs to be reviewed or you updated your screenshots. We need to review that manually. But generally speaking, uh, if it's just a minor update, nothing major has changed in the app configuration, then it should be fairly automated. Yeah, it makes me wonder too, like if there's, if you really wanted to slip something by them, they're probably not going to catch it in app review anyways. So they'll they'll have to deal with it afterwards regardless. So why not let everybody else get in quicker and still deal with those and just revoke them after they've shipped? Because that's how it works right now. And right. That's, that's how Google essentially does it. They, I think they might have some sort of automated review, but it, if they do, it's it's mostly transparent and doesn't slow down the process that much. If, they ran it for several months, I think, and or at least a couple months, and didn't tell anybody, and nobody noticed. And then they said, "Oh yeah, we're actually reviewing your apps now." Yeah, and it. You know, it's probably the big things are looking for things like malware and, you know, major, major issues like that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any reason Apple couldn't do that. And I, I've got to imagine it's cheaper for them to automate that than to have an army of reviewers on staff. Yeah. Depending on what they're actually reviewing and how it's working. Well, hopefully it's here to stay. I guess time will will tell what happens. I I think your suggestion is a good one. You know, I'm tweeting, you know, posting about Thanks, <laughs> how great it is. Yeah, put some pressure on to keep it that way, or even you know, I mean, 24 hours. I mean, why does it have to take that long? <laughs> why not four to six hours? Should we suggest a hashtag for everybody to use? What would be the hashtag for that? I don't know. Same day delivery. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not good at coming up with hashtags, Sam. Uh, no. Continuous delivery. Continuous deployment. I don't Hashtags think they like that. Actually, super shiller. <laughs> isn't there? Isn't that one already exist? Doesn't it? I don't know. It's probably hard to find a hashtag that doesn't already exist. Yeah. True. So uh, we did have a question in our uh, Slack channel uh, today, or this week, I should say, uh, from Carl Bowden. Former guest of the show. Former guest of the show. And he said, you know, uh, just kind of out of curiosity, do you guys have trouble switching it off on the weekends? Uh, like, how do you deal with balancing work, family, and then, like, wanting to to code? So I I think between the three of us, we all have very different business models, it, and but we also all have families as well. So, Alex, you're kind of that that indie lifestyle developer. I've got a consulting company and employees that I have to to deal with, and Sam, you're you're in consulting, working at a large enterprise. On a, on a team that you've been working with for years. Yeah, that's called a wage slave. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you deal with it? Well, for me, I don't have any problems turning off my day job work at night. Yeah, For me, as soon as I leave the door, yeah, maybe I'll think about it on the way home from work. Or if I'm in the morning, I'll think about it in the shower as I'm kind of prepping for my day but for the most part it's just off but the other part is the side work that i do and sometimes that can be kind of hard to to shift off um i've taken the uh the wine approach to ship shifting off where i just kind of code for a while and have a glass of wine as i'm doing it and as i get tired i just Stop coding and go to bed. Never heard of the wine approach. Is that related to the Balmer Peak at all? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you get your best wine work. or beer, <laughs> bourbon. Yeah, I don't really discriminate too much. 
the other thing I try to do is I also try to just, well, one, I never like code in bed. My bedroom is where I sleep and that's it. I think it's <laughs> I good. I watch to- TV. <laughs> as far as PG activities go. <laughs> but no, I, oh. I, you know, I don't eat in bed. I don't watch TV in bed very often, occasionally. Sounds like a fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nothing in bed except sleep. (laughs) Well, it sounds like that you deal with it pretty well. What about you, Alex? I think it's definitely good to have like physical boundaries between where you work and where you live. (laughs) So if you do work at home, you know, having a room where you work, you know, if you can have a desktop so you can't take the laptop to the couch with you when you're trying to spend time with the family. I think that's good. I mean, I, I personally have a hard time putting work aside because I'm typically involved in multiple projects and I have teammates that, that I'm working with that, you know, it's quite often that my work bleeds into, into my free time. And definitely harder now than it used to be. You know, I used to be in Sam's position. So, you know, during the day I'd be focused on one thing and maybe coding or maybe uh, a different responsibility like architecture or uh, framework standards, things like that. And then I'd go home at night and and code on the fun stuff. Uh, but th- that was my hobby. I had fun doing that. Um but it was definitely easier when, when the day job and the, the evening job was different. When it's all blended together, it gets harder. And, you know, I've definitely fallen into the trap where, you know, sometimes it's hard to turn it off. And if I'm not working, I have anxiety about what I should be working on and that I need to get back to work. Yeah, I feel you, Alex. If, if you ask me how do you deal with balancing work uh, and home slash family, I would probably just say poorly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, even when I had a, you know, the the day job where I was doing one thing a day and I, in the day and I had my hobby thing at night, I had a horrible, horrible time uh, just keeping things separate. I, I can remember uh, just not getting much sleep. So I would just cut out the thing that wasn't necessary at all. I would sleep on the bus on the way into a, uh, to work in the morning um, and on the way home and then maybe get a couple hours of sleep at home uh, and then just either be coding or family or or working all the time uh, and it definitely doesn't get any easier when you work out of your house yeah and I think I, I think there were several months where you know pretty much week after week I was averaging if i was lucky four hours a night Mm -hmm. and you know that definitely took its toll i can't do that anymore i you have more gray hair yeah yeah Yeah, i'm i'm at a point that i can't do the all-nighters anymore yeah it's a rare thing for me that i can do that and i have done that for my day job actually where we had a tight deadline Mm -hmm. but i find that my productivity at work the next day is just horrible and i feel guilty because you know the client's paying me to to get a good day of work in Mm -hmm. and my brain can hardly focus yeah well and i have like i so i work from home now and i have kind of one main thing and i do hobby stuff too still uh but I guess sometimes it just gets it'll it'll swing in the other direction too where it's like I'm at home my my cute little 1-year-old is home and my 3-year-old's home so I'll I'll do the opposite and just hang out with family just cuz it's all in the same space uh and 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 then other days I'll just be like oh dinner is done I need to go finish up this thing we're having a production issue or something so yeah it's it's a, it's a constant struggle um so it seems like some awesome boundaries 
are called for, but I've not really figured out the right mix of those yet. I I did like Natasha's uh, answer to that last week in her in her interview with us, where she said that she is very much a morning person, and she wakes up early mm-hmm. and then does all of that side side work, and then comes home from work, goes to bed after eating dinner, and just kind of decompresses. And there's there's definitely something set to be said about having a nighttime ritual that you go through to just tell your body, okay, this is time for going to bed and getting enough sleep. Yeah, I do better on the sleep now, at least. That's that's one thing that I've given up on trying to be the compromising factor. It's no good for long periods of time, yeah. So I do, I do, what, I do the same thing as Natasha does in terms of the morning ritual. I, I usually get up between like five and six in the morning, but I also stay up late. So (laughs) uh, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. That's called burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Yeah. So by Friday, Saturday, I'm pretty much exhausted. But uh, if uh, any of our listeners have any suggestions or comments about how to balance work and your personal life, uh, jump on to chat at sharedinstance.com and and uh, share your opinions. Right. Or, yeah, if you don't want to use the Slack thing, feel free to send us a at message on Twitter. And, uh, you know, we should also call out that Carl, who was a guest on this podcast and had a really great episode, I thought, uh, he's actually doing a podcast now. Uh, what was that called? Retro Speculative on yeah. Loom State FM. It's a pretty cerebral podcast. The uh, interesting episode that I've listened to where he interviewed somebody who's a programmer and also transgender. And it wasn't so much a technical interview, but more of a social, sociological interview really good so call out to him and somebody's firing gunshots or something in my neighborhood that's cool (laughs) that's like car backfire or something yeah just excites the dogs (laughs) well that's about all the time we have left this week so why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet I'm at AJ Robinson on Twitter Wait, I was at, at AJ Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm at Sam Quarter. And I'm at Alex Argo. Uh, you can email us at uh, sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com and leave us a review that we really would love some reviews in the iTunes uh, podcast directory because everyone is awesome. Everyone thinks it's the coolest thing these days. Uh, so if you catch an episode that you like, and you're using Overcast, definitely recommend us. You can hit the little info button on the listing there and hit the, and there's an option to recommend the podcast. Helps us get discovered a little bit more. Cool. Well, it's been good talking to you guys. Uh, we'll talk to you again next week.